Succession The action or process of inheriting a title, office, or property. People love to talk about it. Grant Hill, Vince Carter, Kobe Bryant, and Harold Miner. What do all of these players have in common? At some point in time, usually earlier on in their careers, all of these players were compared to Mike. The Mike he's referring to is, of course, Michael Jordan. Jordan to the circle, puts the shot in the air, good! The game's over, and the Bulls have won! Who most say is the greatest basketball player of all time. When he retired from the game in 1998, the sports world became obsessed with succession, anointing the next Michael Jordan. Every four years, Americans vote for president. And every day in between those elections, there's talk of presidential succession. Who will be the next leader of the free world? The 2024 election is just under 900 days away. Get excited. Or take the royal family of England. They aren't interesting because of their inherent character. What makes the world obsess about them is their place in the line of succession. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the world has turned its attention to the future of the British monarchy. So here's the line of succession broken down. Succession also dominates the business world. When Walt Disney died, the entertainment giant worried they wouldn't find a worthy successor. The same was true of Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, and S. Truett Cathy, the guy who started Chick-fil-A. Picking the right successor after a powerful CEO retires or passes away is one of the most scrutinized decisions a business will face. Of course, succession isn't just a trending topic in sports, politics, and business. It's also a big deal in the church, especially when a pastor has been at the same church for 53 years and counting. I experienced that earlier this year when we first announced season two of this podcast. I ended our trailer with some questions that are on everyone's mind. Who is the next John MacArthur? What's the succession plan? Who will take over for J-Mac? And as AI applauds, MJ says goodbye. He's done. The internet took more than a passing interest in those questions. Someone on Twitter said John MacArthur was going to announce his successor in July. That's five months ago. Still no smoke from the Vatican. One guy on YouTube analyzed everything I said, breaking down the meaning of each word. There was plenty of false information and a lot of interest in the topic. That wasn't surprising. Those questions have come up again and again over the years. After the trailer controversy died down, I asked John MacArthur what he thought about everyone talking about his successor, whether or not he wanted to have that conversation. Here is what he said. Well, it'd be pretty stupid if you didn't, because the succession plan is closer than it's ever been today than it was yesterday. So we're going to talk about it in this episode. John MacArthur is going to tell us his succession plan. And we're going to see how churches and ministries can think wisely and biblically about leadership changes. There are lessons here for all of us about how we trust God with the future, how we think about our own lives and legacies, and what it looks like to faithfully entrust truth 
to the next generation. My name is Austin Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master's Seminary. And this is season two of the podcast from the center. The Entrusted, the convictions and legacy of John MacArthur. This episode, the final of season two, is titled MacArthur and His Successor. When it comes to MacArthur's successor, these are big shoes to fill. John is certainly a larger-than-life leader, with an unprecedented ministry that starts in the Grace Church pulpit and goes around the world. But it's important to keep in mind, the ministry John leads today is very different than it was in 1969. Well, I grew into it, and that's the only way you could ever imagine handling it. I couldn't, even at this point in my life, with the experience that I have had in ministry, there is no possible way that I could step into this kind of ministry and carry it out. And I'll tell you why in one simple sentence. Because it is based on deep, long-lasting relationships of trust. I can step into any of these ministry environments and I can say, here's what I think you should do. And they respond with a half a century of trust. Somebody else doing that wouldn't be able to get the trust. John understands that his successor needs to be a churchman, someone who will shepherd the flock of God at Grace Church someone who's willing to take the time to build the kind of trust that he just spoke about. And for that, there are lots of quality options. From the Master's Seminary alone, more than a thousand alumni are faithfully serving as pastors all around the globe, expositing the Bible verse by verse, line by line, phrase by phrase, and watching it change lives and strengthen churches. In recent years, I've had the privilege of getting to know many of these men, and I want to introduce a few of them to you. Let's start this episode with a segment I'm calling Interviewing the Successors. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Scott Artavanis. For me, it goes all the way back to September of 1972. Uh, Our family ended up coming to Grace Church. I grew up in Canoga Park, California in the San Fernando Valley, and we started to attend there in 72. He's the pastor of Grace Church of the Valley in Kingsburg, California, a quaint Swedish village three hours north of Los Angeles. He was also part of the second graduating class of the Master Seminary way back in 1988, and he currently serves on the school's board of directors. So much of Scott's expositional ministry has been shaped by Pastor John. I grew up with his family. I grew up with his kids. I grew up specifically with Matt playing baseball at high school together. We traveled to games together. He really was a spiritual father and mentor, but he taught me how to do a wedding. He taught me how to do a funeral, not because he said, Scott, this is what I'm going to do, but I watched his tenderness with the families, both before 
during the funeral, the memorial service, as well as afterward. And I just, I think it was his life that impacted me. I, I think one of the other takeaways, there's much to say, is I've known him for 50 years and I've never known him as a polemic man. Um, uh, I've never heard him harsh. I've never really encountered him as hard hitting. No, my impression was he's my pastor and he's faithful. And I found him over 50 years, extremely humble and personal. And so I'm impacted by that. His graciousness, his kindness. Scott is a great candidate because he understands MacArthur's pastoral heart. You can see the imprint of pastoral ministry from John MacArthur to Scott Artavanis. For our next pastoral successor, let's eavesdrop on a Sunday morning service at Cornerstone Community Church in Goa, India. But when you see Christ who has crushed the heel of death, you become a lion for him because he gives you that courage. As you look at his life, as you look at his resurrection, and you know that that is mine. For me, dying is gain, not just because of what we lose, but because of what we gain. Sammy Williams, a graduate of the Master's Seminary, trains men for ministry in India. He oversees a seminary that is preparing the next generation of pastors in one of the world's most populated countries. With a candidate like Sammy, you see someone who understands the power of the gospel to reach across language and border. He has MacArthur's heartbeat for the nations and understands the priority of the Great Commission, which makes him an excellent candidate. Our next interview is with Will Thomas, a Master's Seminary alumnus who shepherds a small church in New Bern, North Carolina. My church is the sweetest little church in the world. We are about, mm, with all our kids, maybe round up to 100 members. I would say the most fundamental aspect of what I saw in Pastor MacArthur and the pastors of the church that I got to be around is that they were entrusted with the truth of God's word and to give it to God's people and to do that in a in a clear faithful manner to where it's it's meaning and its functional authority uh, guided and governed the congregation in Will Thomas and his charming southern twang you see a man carrying on the simple priority of pastoral ministry will understands that his job is to be faithful and follow the Bible. Will makes a great candidate because he holds scripture both high in principles and practice. Now, let's hear another expositor who learned from John MacArthur how to proclaim God's truth. Being an ambassador to a queen is nothing, is nothing compared to being called to be the herald of the King of Kings. Fali Rohangni is training church leaders in Madagascar. No, not the New York Zoo, Madagascar, the island nation off the coast of Africa, Madagascar. And Folly is a gifted expositor, taking all he's learned from John MacArthur and applying it in his home country. Like MacArthur, he can preach the lights out, and he understands the priority of training men. 
The Bible says the glory of a young man is his strength. So maybe we need to be looking at the youth. After all, MacArthur was only 29 when he took the job at Grace Church. Not long ago, I traveled to Sacramento, the capital of California, and I interviewed two potential successors, young, dynamic pastors who are leading growing congregations in the thick of a secular city. My name is Tranway Yu, and I grew up here in Sacramento, California. Uh, I grew up just down the street from this church and actually went to school right around the corner over here at the school right behind the church. I grew up going to this church and got saved in this church, went away to, to college at UCLA, and that's how I got plugged into Grace Community Church and Grace on Campus and uh, got to sit under John MacArthur's ministry there. I feel like I've learned from Pastor John's example just to be faithful and to trust the Word, to be faithful and preach and teach and shepherd and, and just trust the Word, trust the Lord to do the work. The issue is not culture. The issue is obedience. Are we more loving than God? Are we more wise than God? The church is God's idea, not ours. We would be foolish to set aside his instructions. And across town from Tranway, another young man named Vlad Berlaka is leading City Bible Church, a thriving, growing congregation in the heart of Sacramento. Seeing Pastor John invest into uh, other leaders in the church and equip saints to do the work of the ministry is something that thoroughly carried over to what we're doing at City Bible even today. Another lesson that I learned from Pastor John's ministry, which is no gimmicks, commitment to faithful exposition of God's Word. You go out of your way, sacrificing even your own self in order to be there to strengthen and to challenge and encourage your brother or sister's faith when it becomes shaky in the midst of suffering. Perhaps John MacArthur's successor has an interesting name like Tranway Yu or Vlad Berlaka. Or maybe it's Scott, Sammy, Will, or Fali. Or another one of the countless men around the world who are ready to take the baton from MacArthur. But is the kind of interview process you just heard how Grace Community Church is going to pick her next pastor? Is that local congregation going to interview candidates from around the country? We're going to answer that question and talk more about the next pastor of Grace Church later in the episode. But before we do that, we need to answer another question that's on everyone's mind. When? When is this going down? If I had my way, I'd put MacArthur on what I like to call the Moses plan. That seemingly ageless leader of Israel lived to be 120 years old. And the last 40 years of his ministry was the most fruitful. It's where Deuteronomy came from. If the same goes for J-Mac, he has another 37 years in the job. And Grace Church wouldn't have to choose their next pastor until 2060. Sign me up for that plan. But most octogenarians, or anyone who's been on the job for a half a century, have thought about retirement or been retired for years. But is that how pastors should think? I recently asked someone that question who's well known for his stance on retirement. Please welcome John Piper to our humble podcast. We old people need to get out of our heads, actually younger people need to get out of their heads foolish thinking about the end years. And one of the foolishnesses is that heaven 
heaven starts at 65. Heaven starts at death. Don't bring it in. I mean, the, the, the mindset that Fort Myers, Florida or Phoenix is the beginning of heaven. So I've earned it. I'll take it. I'll go there. I'm putting all the troubles behind me. Going to have play and leisure. So that's a massive misunderstanding of eschatology. <laughs> Super over-realized eschatology is called retirement. Um, so that's, that's one mistake that we just got to get out of our heads. Second, oh, you better think clearly how boring and empty this is going to be about five years in. Count on it. Golf is going to get old. Fishing is going to get old. Trying to make your your hairless, scaly legs tanned is going to get old. You're going to look like a fool at 75 and 85. And depression is going to set in. And Ralph Winter is going to be proved right. Where men don't die of old age, they die of retirement. Because we weren't made to end life this way. We were made to work insofar as our capacities let us. Now, I don't mean to make any poor guy or gal in a nursing home who barely can see, they barely can walk, they barely can hear. Like my mother-in-law is 101 years old and she's loving Jesus, but she can't get out of bed. Well, you think I'm going to get on her case? <laughs> she can't do more for Jesus. Her, her fight is don't curse him. Hold on to the end. Keep praying. Keep trusting. It's going to be okay. You don't retire from a calling. You don't retire from being an elder. You don't retire from being a pastor. You don't retire from preaching. You're you're faithful to the end. You you endure, you know, faithfully to the very very end until that the end is when you can't do it anymore. I mean, in my own mind, I. I, I don't like the notion of retirement for a number of reasons. Reason number one is I love the people that I work with. And I, I, would, I would be just hollowed out as a person if I couldn't interact with people. I, I don't like even a day when I don't get to engage with the men like you guys that I, that I love and serve alongside. This is energizing to me. This is empowering to me. This is affirming. And um, those friendships define me. To cut those off would, would be uh, impossible for me. Secondly, I, I can't understand why I would retire when I know now more than I've ever known about the things of the Lord, about the scripture, spiritual wisdom, whatever level I am at this point is uh, at a level it's never been in the past. So for the reason that I, I should be more valuable to the organization and that the people are priceless to me, I can't walk away. There is so much wisdom from these two seasoned pastors. God numbers each of our days, and he has a calling for every single one of them. Our job is to live out that calling with all our strength and passion until the Lord calls us home. That's why John MacArthur isn't going anywhere. 
because God has not moved him anywhere. And we all pray that the when of succession is many, many years from now. Still, even if MacArthur never retires, and like Moses, he makes it all the way to 120 before he crawls up Mount Nebo, succession is inevitable. Time marches on, and it marches quickly. The Hebrew word Havel is used in other places in the Old Testament to mean brevity, shortness. You know, as for man, he's like a shadow. Um, Metaphorically, it's like the idea of being like grass. This is David Gibson. He's the minister of Trinity Church in Aberdeen, Scotland. He's also the author of Living Life Backwards, how Ecclesiastes teaches us to live in light of the end. The Hebrew word he's referring to dominates the book of Ecclesiastes. Most Bibles translate the word vanity. Gibson translates it a little differently. And the moment I think you read that as life is brief, transitory passing, the light came on for me as an expositor. This book is a meditation on the fact that I am here today and gone tomorrow. You know, it sounds depressing, of course. I don't think it is in Ecclesiastes, but it sounds depressing. But that's incredibly liberating for people to grapple with and to think, oh, that the Bible's realistic. The Bible is true. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Gibson sees wisdom we too often forget. No ministry lasts forever. No man is permanent. The book of James picks up this theme when it reminds us that we are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's Hevel, mist, vapor, smoke. Pastors need to keep that truth in mind. Remember that no matter how long the ministry, still, all flesh is as grass. Believing that will change how pastors think about their ministry and how churches think about succession. Because life is so short, it stops you trying to build long-lasting empire displaying glory for your own name. Ecclesiastes is a kind of meditation on the failed project of being God. From the garden, the, 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 the heart of the rebellion was, you know, thanks very much, God. We'll take it from here. Thank you. You've made a good start. You, you shove off. We're in charge now. The, the creature wants to be God and know what God knows, have what God has, you know, live forever and know what God knows. Pastoral ministry is a very fertile ground for all those same sins, just in Christianized forms. What is that fertile ground Gibson is talking about? It's the tendency in the ministry to focus on success, to think about title, position, and power. It's the desire that can be subtle at times to elevate yourself over your Lord and to dream about your lasting legacy more than his eternal glory. Some of the most ambitious people I've ever met are pastors and some of them ambitious rightly for the kingdom, for unconverted people, uh, for the gospel, some of them wrongly for themselves ultimately. The Ecclesiastes perspective comes into the mix and says, pastor, do, do your work faithfully, sow your seed, preach the word like the Lord Jesus in Mark 4 and leave 
off any thought of legacy. My concern definitely is more about sovereignty than it is legacy. And it's also um, my submission totally to divine providence. I've been asked, you know, what do you want people to say about you when you're not here? And my response has been, I've never even thought about that. I, I don't really care what they say about me when I'm here or when I'm not here. Um, I can't get caught up in trying to create some kind of reputation uh, that I want to craft a certain way. Uh, I just want to be faithful and do what I do, and the critics are who they are, and the people that support are who they are. And uh, I just want to serve the Lord. You know, it's again, it's, I, I go back to this so often. Paul said, it's a small thing what you say about me. Um, I'm going to wait the day when the secret things are revealed by God, and then will every man have his praise from God. So the, the verdict will be rendered on my life in heaven, and I'm more than content just to be on the winning side and to have had the privilege of ministry. Whatever remains of this influence is what it is and will be what it is. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't craft that, uh, nor would I even think about it. Michael Horton says somewhere that pastors need to learn that the legacy is God's business, not the pastor's business. So Ecclesiastes helps pastors, I think, just to be faithful, just to be the person who gets up. And it, and it, that that's not, again, it's, it's how the Bible fits together so beautifully. Is it? It's not anti the Pauline perspective at all. Paul is the one that, just like Jesus does, talks about that work of ministry being like a farmer, hardworking farmer. Um, a commanding officer, a soldier wants to please his commanding officer, an athlete. It's kind of Ecclesiastes is, is do your do your job, soldier, and your job is to leave the expansion of the empire to the commanding officer, not yourself. Because life is here today and gone tomorrow, succession is inevitable. And the worst way to prepare for the inevitable is to devote the precious time God has given you to your legacy. That's thinking too highly of yourself. A simple way to understand it is the Lord buries his workmen and his work goes on. Another way I've looked at it is when when I leave, it's like taking your hand out of a bucket of water. There's no hole. Um, God's, God's plan is not uh, tied to any one individual. Churches have always had to pass the ministry on to the next generation. That's been happening since apostolic times. The Apostle Paul told Titus to establish elders in every city on Crete. And then when he wrote his swan song to Timothy, he told him in 2 Timothy 2, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are so many lessons of succession both good and bad, from church history. As I was thinking about what men and ministries from previous generations have the most to teach us about MacArthur's successors, I couldn't find a better example than Charles Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. For 38 years, 
Charles Spurgeon pastored this prominent church. He was called by the congregation when he was just 19 years old. There, we learn so many excellent lessons about succession, and a few cautionary ones as well, all from Spurgeon's long and fruitful ministry in London. For a little background on Spurgeon and the church he pastored, I spoke to Jeffrey Chang. Dr. Chang is Assistant Professor of Church History and Historical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's also curator of the Spurgeon Library, which houses many books and artifacts from Spurgeon's personal library. They even have the cigar he had in his pocket when he died. Dr. Chang recently wrote a book titled Spurgeon the Pastor, Recovering a Biblical and Theological Vision for Ministry. He began ministry as a, as a village pastor there in Water Beach, and uh, he pastored a, a small congregation that grew to about three or 400 during his, his short time there. Um, but then, you know, as, as this village pastor, he goes to London and he ends up being the pastor of the largest church in evangelicalism in his day, really kind of church history's first mega church as we would know it. Every Sunday, thousands came to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon. Throughout his ministry, Spurgeon was the most famous preacher in the world. His nickname was the Prince of Preachers. His collected sermons fill 63 volumes, 25 million words. He was an encyclopedic preacher. It's difficult to comprehend how productive and prolific Spurgeon was. He was just remarkably productive. Uh, he regularly preached four times a week. That's four times a week in his church. Uh, but he would have a lot of outside preaching engagements. He could preach as much as 13 or 14 times a week, which is amazing. And the thing is, all his sermons were published so that he couldn't repeat sermons. <laughs> he would go out to preach and he'd have to like come up with something new every time. And, and, and God gifted him as an extemporaneous preacher in many ways. So uh, he was able to do that. So he had this amazing, phenomenal preaching ministry. Uh, his sermons were published weekly, so he had to edit those for preparation for publication. Uh, in addition to pastoring a church of 5,000, which brings all of its pastoral challenges with it, you know, leading your elders, pastoral care, membership interviews, those things. He also ran a pastor's college, which meant, you know, all these young men that he was discipling and training. Uh, he ran two orphanages, you know, at the height of his ministry, uh, had a monthly magazine that he edited. Uh, we could keep going. I mean, he, he had 66 charitable institutions that were founded in his church. He was... The, the de facto chairman of every one of those institutions. Uh, so he had invitations all the time to sit in at some annual meeting for, you know, the mission to the Jewish people there in London. I mean, just, he was in contact with missionaries from all over the world. He had correspondence coming in. He was writing, you know, 500 pieces of correspondence every week. If you're not catching it, there are some eerie similarities between MacArthur and Spurgeon. Both men led ministries with a global reach. Both prioritized preaching. Both started schools to train pastors. They even share the same birthday, June 19th. How weird is that? And like MacArthur, Spurgeon has a seemingly endless energy and ability to get things done. But amid all the similarities between Spurgeon and MacArthur, two stand out, preaching and training men. What I love about Spurgeon's heart there, I mean, he is a, he's 19 years old. I think he's 20 by now, uh, but he's got a full load. I mean, he's a young pastor just starting in this church, not even a year in. 
and yet he sees the the priority of pastoral training you know and uh, what I emphasize there is just that the idea that raising up the next generation of pastors is part of the pastor's job description you know it's it's right there next to preaching and leading your elders and membership interviews I mean you got to think about that next generation that comes after you yet thinking about Spurgeon and the men who would follow him in ministry Dr. Chang has a wise warning. A lot of young guys admire Spurgeon, and I would tell them, don't try to copy him. You're going to kill yourself. I think if Spurgeon had a weakness, perhaps it was doing too much, overwork, you know, and uh, at the at the cost of his health. Um, so he struggled health-wise, but that's because he was so productive and he did so much. That wisdom isn't just for young pastors. It's also for churches thinking about succession especially after a high-energy, prolific man has led their church for a long time. That kind of productive personality is not normal. Guys like Spurgeon are special, they're singular, they're one of a kind. And it can be easy for churches to think a ministry like the one those men led will carry on in the same way even after they're gone. But that's rarely the case, because as we've already learned, life is a vapor. And that means ministry can change in a moment. He died at the age of 57, you know, and as far as I can tell, there was no clearly outlined succession plan. Um, in terms of what happened, uh, you know, he had been towards the latter part of his life struggling with ill health. Uh, and by the fall of 1891, he, he leaves London for his usual kind of rhythm in the winter times is coming. He's, his health is failing once again. And he heads for Mentone, France, where he goes to recover his health. And he's usually there for, for months at a time, actually, because his health is so poor. And this time around, his health just keeps declining. And by January of 1892, he's passed away. And I think he was caught off guard. I mean, uh, he was fully expecting to return. After an interim pastor led the Metropolitan Tabernacle for a year, the church called Spurgeon's son, Thomas, to be their pastor. You can tell they're always trying to like recapture the magic, right? They're, they're, and they're trying to do that with Thomas. They, you know, they hear his father's voice and, and Thomas's voice. Though the technology existed to record Charles Spurgeon's voice, it never happened. But we do have a recording of Thomas Spurgeon reading from his father's final sermon. If you wear the glory of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your soul. He is the most magnanimous of pastors. There never was his life among the choicest of princes. Apologies for that audio quality. It was 1905. Thankfully, things have improved. Except for those of you who think the music is too loud on the podcast. Also sorry about that. So they have high expectations of Thomas. You know, basically step into your father's shoes. And Thomas tries to do that. I mean, he, he, he's running the pastor's college. He's you know, running the orphanages. He's, he's doing, you know, the church continues to be a large mega church, you know, even after Spurgeon's death. But all that takes its toll on Thomas. And he's, he, yeah, he's not able to do it. And, and, and soon he resigns claiming because of ill health. And it has to do with the overwork, I'm sure. One biographer of Thomas Spurgeon said all his father's responsibilities were a crushing burden. 
I ask Dr. Chang what lessons about succession we can learn from the life and ministry of Charles Spurgeon. You know, I talked about how Spurgeon perhaps was caught off guard a bit, you know, and uh, and that's a good lesson for us. You know, we, we realize that we don't know when the end will come, and we we recognize that our our pastorates are only temporary; they're, they're stewardships, and, and someday we will be preparing the church for the next guy and, and handing that off. So we just want to pastor and lead in a way where the congregation is aware of that and and they're ready for that, you know, and especially as the years kind of drag on um, that we are increasingly giving thought to that. Uh, what that looks like, I, I'm not sure, but, you know, we have to give thought to that and, and, and be aware of that reality. Um, you know, the, the other thought perhaps might be the danger of a congregation as they're facing a transition of trying to recapture the magic, as I said, of trying to, you know, <clears throat> recreate what God has done in, in previous decades and previous years. And I mean, what we recognize there is when we try to do that, we it often leads to unhealthy results where we're trying to dictate to how God must work according to, you know, ways in which he worked in the past. Yeah, no, I think in every transition, we have to go at it with open hands, trusting God for whatever he lies ahead in the future. Uh, we want to be faithful for sure. We want to be faithful to the same gospel, to the same convictions that we draw from scripture. Uh, but the results we leave to him. Dr. Chang points to an invaluable lesson for all churches with a pastor that's been there a long time or one who's well-known and connected to multiple ministries. When that man is no longer around, it's unwise to try and recapture the magic with another individual. God rarely gifts two men in the exact same way. What was a full, effective ministry for one man may likely be overwhelming or ill-suited for another. This is yet another aspect that highlights the difficulty that churches face in pastoral transitions. I've seen two high-profile church transitions up close and neither of them worked out. Uh, neither of them stuck and each of them for their own reasons failed, you know. Uh, but both cases proved to me just how hard this handoff really is. Uh, it, it is <laughs> if you think it's hard, it's harder than that. And especially when you're talking about a high profile personality, you know, someone who is uniquely gifted by God, who garnered an immense amount of trust from a lot of people over a very long time. You can't hand that off. Trust is trust is not transferable. Each man has to earn his own trust over time. And so there's really no younger successor who will have an equal trust capital. And to sort of hand that off in a one-to-one -one correlation, I think, is, is quite dangerous. This is Tony Renke. He's a senior teacher at Desiring God and the host of the Ask Pastor John podcast. That's the other Pastor John, Piper, not John MacArthur. You may remember him from the episode on Calvinism earlier this season. Tony is also the author of several helpful books, including God, Technology, and The Christian Life. We're talking about a few, just very few uh, of men in the church in a given generation uh, who are called uh, and gifted to the point that they have become the cornerstone of an institution, humanly speaking, a cornerstone who bring international notoriety to a church or to a school or to a seminary uh, or to a ministry. And in these situations, it seems best to think of a succession model um, less in terms of a one-to-one -one correlation in succession 
and more in terms of a team of gifted men who will, will take over, who, who can carry on the legacy, carry on the vision uh, together in their own way, each making their own contributions um, it, instead of vesting that legacy in one man, which I think is is really uh, can be a setup for failure. And for teachers who have a uniquely global impact, uh, this only makes sense anyways, really, to think of the legacy in broader terms than just one man, because, you know, in such a case, a man's enduring legacy should never be restricted to one geographic location. It needs to be appreciated in the uh, in the thousands of lives that he has touched and the hundreds, if not thousands, maybe ten thousands of pastors that he has equipped and inspired to ministry faithfulness in the gospel. We settled on thinking in terms of uh, succession as a team of men, a team of men, a team of senior teachers and teachers and staff who will steward Pastor John's teaching legacy, you know, what we call Christian hedonism. Uh, and by doing the ongoing work together and collectively. There's no John Piper number two. There's one John Piper. And so the succession model of, of John Piper is first in his legacy, again, being carried forward by the people across the world who have been inspired by him to preach Christ and to proclaim the bigness of our God and to focus on our delight in him, on the affections. And then secondarily, his legacy is stewarded by a team of uh, like-minded men called on to carry out Desiring God's ongoing work that will uh, continue past Pastor John. But of course, you know, this succession model in really every succession model requires a tremendous amount of grace and of humility and of death to those very strong desires of self-preservation and of self-seeking uh, that each leader must fight every single day in order to not lose sight of the organizational goals and the aims and in order to faithfully uphold the legacy that's been entrusted into our hands. It's not our legacy. It's someone else's legacy that we're building off of. And I think we can honor that uh, through our humility, through our team building and through building a healthy organization that truly does justice to the legacy that uh, these faithful men of God leave behind. There's a lot of wisdom in what Tony just said. It connects us with that gained trust that MacArthur referred to earlier. You see, whoever succeeds MacArthur isn't ultimately building on a man's legacy. The Apostle Paul understood this. And after confronting the Corinthians' factionalism in following after certain teachers, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. 
You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. What we're seeing there is that we all have a role to play. We're all building on the work that has preceded us, and the foundation is always the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's time for a little review. We've met six men who are the kind of pastors that would follow John MacArthur. We've seen that succession is inevitable because life is a vapor. And we've learned some valuable lessons about the difficulty of succession from Charles Spurgeon, his son Thomas, and the Metropolitan Tabernacle. All of that gives us a solid framework for succession. Now, let's go back to the question we started this episode with. Who is going to succeed John MacArthur? And how are John MacArthur and Grace Community Church going to decide who the next pastor will be? Pastoral succession is an aspect of the providence of God. I think that's the first thing to say. Um, and, and we have to see it in that light and look to him who has promised to provide. So that's our basic stance. This is Sinclair Ferguson. Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, a pastor in Scotland, and author of dozens of wonderful books, including The Whole Christ. As I thought about the how of churches and pastoral succession, I could think a few people more wise and more helpful on the topic than Sinclair Ferguson. He served in multiple churches throughout his ministry and was part of a pastoral succession from himself to Derek Thomas at First Presbyterian of Columbia, South Carolina. When there has been a, a, a great and strong ministry, the transition point can present very special challenges. And, you know, I think of situations in history where there have been those special challenges. Sometimes for, for some churches, the temptation has been we need to find the nearest clone to what we've already had. And that seems to me to be myopic. I think that sometimes happens where one thing that the ministry has not done has been to cultivate the congregation's ability to feed on different styles of preaching, for example. You know, I think in general terms and looking to the future, um, that's actually a very important thing for a congregation that has really been strengthened by a ministry, that they have, they have been helped to feed on the ministry of others than the person who has been the chief expositor of God's word. Ministry in the local church is never supposed to be a one-man show. God's word is clear. A local congregation should be under the care of a plurality of elders. 
those men are best equipped to lead the church through all kinds of changes, including pastoral succession. The elders don't exist apart from the rest of the congregation, and they exist as part of that congregation. Most of them have wives and families. Um, they, you know, this isn't this isn't like the election of the Pope where they're going to be sequestered off um, from the rest of the church to make decisions. But they are the ones who have known the inside of the present ministry. And, you know, if they've been good elders, then they have been sympathetic to it. And they also understand how that ministry has especially helped the church um, and what the church has become. And I, I think I've always looked in myself in terms of the next stage of life, if there is a next stage of life, for trajectories. So that God has given us a particular trajectory. And what we are looking for, therefore, is um, someone we can trust a major role in that trajectory too, understanding that God's usual trajectories are not straight line trajectories. Dr. Ferguson points us to the providence of God and the polity of the church being led by a plurality of godly men that the Bible calls elders. Here's Jeffrey Chang again talking about how Spurgeon understood early in his ministry that he couldn't lead the church by himself. If the ministry was going to thrive and endure beyond his lifetime, a biblical eldership must be established. So Spurgeon comes along and, and he says, uh, no, in fact, what we see in the New Testament is a plurality of elders. And he begins to teach on it. Uh, and he finds men who are doing the work of a pastor in his congregation, you know, who are discipling, who are counseling, who are teaching. Uh, and he moves the congregation to kind of implement that office once again and, uh, and call these men to serve as elders. So starting in 1859, five years after he started there in London, um, he has elders serving alongside with him for the rest of his ministry. And he really makes it like he, he really emphasizes this. He says, had it not been for the office of eldership, like our attempt to be a true church would have been just a joke. It would have been a sham, you know, because there's no way we would have been able to function as a true church apart from these men serving alongside me, you know, to care, to shepherd, to teach and so forth. In the midst of the books, commentaries, study Bibles, radio ministry, conferences and schools where John MacArthur has provided leadership, his primary responsibility has always been Grace Church. He shepherds the flock there, but he doesn't do it alone. He serves alongside his fellow elders. He's accountable to them. They lead the church together. That's the biblical model. Here's MacArthur in a 1990 sermon from 1 Peter, outlining what the Bible says about the church's leadership. Churches were led by a plurality of godly men. And it is very helpful for us to note that that plurality is important. Let me just give you just a brief suggestion about that. Where you have a plurality of elders, you have some very important protections. For example, with a plurality of elders or pastors, leaders in the church, it preserves the church against error. 
You'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, the Apostle Paul, writing to the rather chaotic and confused church at Corinth, said, let the spirit of the prophet be subject to the prophets. What he meant by that was don't let anybody act independently of the group. There is a sense in which no man has the freedom to teach, to lead, independent of a plurality of godly men with whom he works, alongside whom he studies and teaches, and who can bring to bear their own insights on the truth. Where you have a plurality of godly men, you have some insulation against error. It preserves against error. Before MacArthur continues to outline why there's so much wisdom in the institution of a biblical eldership, you need to know that when he came to Grace Church, there were no elders. There was a board of directors. It was more of a Methodist ecclesiology. But as MacArthur taught through the Bible, he realized he needed to train and establish elders. That became an early priority. Secondly, where you have a plurality of godly leaders in a church, it preserves against imbalance. The fact of the matter is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said there are varieties of offices, there are varieties of gifts, there are varieties of administrations. And I think it's very important in the church that where there is a plurality of godly men in leadership, there is also by God's design a plurality of capabilities and gifts and administrations. And one of the things that happens in a sort of one-man dominated church is that it gets very out of balance because God does not give all gifts to one individual. Also, a plurality of godly men in a church preserves against undue elevation of one man. It is very important that one man not be elevated above what is proper. It is very important that you honor those who are over you in the Lord and that you respect them for their work's sake. But an undue elevation can occur where one man dominates completely. One other good reason for plurality of leadership in a church is it preserves against discontinuity. One of the things that happens in a church that is dominated by one man is that when that one man is gone, there's no continuity in the ministry. There's nobody else who can step in because there's nobody else in leadership at that level. And so I believe that God in His infinite wisdom, when He designed the church, designed it to have a plurality of leaders. That is why the word elder always appears in the plural, except when making reference to an individual elder, like the elder John. Every time it is used in reference to a local church, it is always plural. A plurality of godly men who together discern truth, who together bring balance, who together are honored and respected, and who together hold each other accountable for a godly and a pure life, and who together provide long-term continuity in the life of the church. So at the very beginning, I said, we're going to have a men's uh, Bible study, theology study Saturday morning. I did that before I'd go to my kids' games and things like that. And I said, any men who want to come, you're welcome to come. But I particularly picked certain ones that I'd come to know and thought had the skills and gifts and desires for pastoral ministry. And I just, I took the theology notes from my seminary classes 
and I just went right through systematic theology with these men, building deep and building in a, in a way that was not devotional but was really theological. I didn't restrict it to a certain group. There were a certain group I wanted there, but it was open to anybody. And that went on for seven or eight years, actually. And while it looked to be um, a kind of a maybe a simple and casual approach, on my part, it was very intentional because I had to reframe their theology or I didn't know if I could survive because I couldn't step into the pulpit constantly and say something different than what they believed. This, this becomes irritating, obviously. So I knew I had to get them on board, and uh, that's, that was the way that it happened. And those guys became the, the first and early staff and elders, and now, you know, we're several generations uh, from, from them. MacArthur had that biblical truth in mind when he started at Grace Church more than 50 years ago. From his earliest days at the church, John was training men cultivating and discipling the future leaders. Fifteen years into his ministry, John was asked to lead Los Angeles Bible College, now the Master's University. He agreed, seeing it as another way to teach a biblical worldview to the next generation of church members. And when the Master's Seminary was founded in 1986, it was done with the hope that one day, countless men would teach the Bible verse by verse in churches around the globe. And by God's grace, both institutions are already carrying on the legacy of truth that John established. You see, entrusting, preparing for succession has always been part of John's job description. That's why critics who say MacArthur doesn't have a succession plan haven't been listening closely. As that sermon clip from 1990 and the investments that John's made with his time and resources show, John has been planning for succession for decades. His plan is the Bible's plan. At Grace Church, it's a plurality of godly pastors and elders. Around the world, it's an army of faithful churchmen and church leaders. All I've endeavored to do is sort of live out 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you've learned from me uh, among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men as you'll be able to teach others also. And that is, that's a relay. You know, I, I, mean, I used to run the relay. I used to run the 4 by 400 relay. And I got a baton from somebody and I handed it off to somebody else and I walked off the track and, and I was done. And I just, that's, I'll run my lap hand the baton to whoever is next. It's not the man, it's the movement. What does it mean to entrust? It essentially means that you have given them a substantial gift of divine truth, an essential body of divine truth, living example, ministry, character, that is understandable, comprehensive, and can be passed on to someone else. Paul says, the things you've heard from me, all the instruction, all the teaching, that was confirmed by many witnesses, confirmed to be true. You, you have an understanding of that. You understand that body of divinity, to borrow a Puritan term. 
and you can literally take it and pass it off to another faithful man who will be able to do the same to others who follow him. You're not entrusting them with your personality. You're not entrusting them with your style. You're entrusting them with the body of truth to such a degree that they own it, understand it, and can preach it and live it in front of the next generation. As MacArthur has spent his life entrusting the truth to the next generation, it's filled his ministry with so much optimism and joy because the people of Grace Church and John's successor are going to step into an environment where the focus isn't on the preacher. The focus is on the word. The next generation will enjoy the fruits of John's labor to establish leaders, to convey the truth to the next generation. The people have been trained to look to God's word, not to any one individual. In the case of our church, it's going to be a, virtually a non-issue for a while because there are so many gifted men already preaching, teaching, leading here that the congregation know and love and respond to that they'll just carry on. Um, and it, it could be a long time before they decide to sort of elevate one individual into the, you know, to the bulk of the, the pulpit ministry. I just want to get out of the way. I, 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 don't, I, don't, um, I don't want to have any grip on the future at all. I don't want people to function as if I were still here. I don't want people to um, turn me into some kind of monument. I, I want to just get out of the way. When my time is over, I'm, I'm happy to enter the presence of the Lord. And you can stop the story at that point. Uh, and, and just yield up everything to the next leadership that God has ordained. And I don't, I don't want to choose that. People on the outside see me in the broad range of ministries, writing, preaching, radio, television, whatever it is, conferences and all that. People at Grace Church, however, don't see me as a solo performer, like you are as an author or a television personality or radio guy, they know there's a team of elders here. They know there's a, there's a panoply of gifted men. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not only more than content, I'm thrilled that I don't need to have any part in making the decision about the future. That would be presumptuous of me. Grace Church isn't going to hire a headhunting firm to gather resumes to find the next pastor of preaching and vision. They don't need that because MacArthur has given Grace Church's leaders and its people the right perspective on spiritual leadership and pastoral ministry. Also, the church is well-defined in her priorities and doctrine. So even though there is no second John MacArthur, there are plenty of men who will hold to the same body of truth he does. 
That's why MacArthur's been so intentional about encouraging and building up a plurality of preachers around him. I gave up Sunday nights a few years back. And the reason I did that was that I, I wanted to step back from such a dominating posture. You were every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and, and every special occasion, I was the guy. And so I think, um, I think they know what other personalities are like. I think they know there's a common commitment to the authority of the Word of God. Among these different personalities, the, the personality might be 25% of the experience, but 75% of the experience is the fidelity to truth and Scripture. So I don't, I don't think it's just a personality change, and, and I wanted them to be used to that and used to that. And over the, the last number of years, except I didn't do it this year, I'd even go away for a couple months in the summer. And that was purposefully calculated to allow the people to be shepherded by someone else. Those gifted men are MacArthur's successors. Rather than looking for the next John MacArthur, the succession plan has been in effect since the earliest days of John's ministry. And he will continue to entrust God's truth to God's men for the advancement of God's kingdom. So I think what will happen here is um, not the difficulty for the people in the pulpit going forward. It'll be more a sense of the fact that I'm not here. Uh, adjusting to my absence not adjusting to the presence of different people preaching. And, and the adjusting to my absence is, is, um, is just kind of a normal thing where there's a deep affection mutually for someone. I mean, we, we have it all the time, right? Every single Sunday, the announcements, that somebody else died in our large church and we're having another funeral or two funerals this week. And, you know, we, we respond to that. Um, Emotionally, to the degree that we knew those people and interacted with them. So I think there's a, I think it's a bit like the Ephesian elders putting their arms around Paul and knowing that they would maybe never see his face again. It didn't mean that they thought it was the end of the kingdom or that the church would completely collapse. There was just a profound affection for the teacher. So I think what will change here. Um, will be will be that the sadness about my absence because so many people connected their spiritual life to me but at the same time a gladness that the Lord used me uh, as an instrument in their life so there'll be a certain sadness about that but I don't think there's going to be any any big issue about who the next preachers are there's so many gifted men I'm disturbed sometimes when I hear people say, this is John MacArthur's church. That isn't so. That is not so. I'll be gone someday. Somehow, some way, I'll be gone. It may be that we all go together in the rapture. It may be gone. It may be that I'll be gone before you go. Should the Lord take me home? Whatever's in his plan. And this will be the church of Jesus Christ, whether I'm around or not. 
Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. It's been a privilege to trace the ministry of John MacArthur, from his dad's influence on him to his influence on the next generation of preachers. We're so grateful for our listeners. After a break this winter, we'll be back with the third season of the MacArthur Center Podcast. The Untrusted is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and occasionally Jeremy Vuolo. Habib Tanous edits this podcast. Cody Signore adds the beats and so much more. Shout out to Philip. Special thanks to David Gibson, Jeff Chang, Tony Ranke, and John Piper. And of course, thank you to my pastor. He's always gracious and always generous with his time. For more information about the MacArthur Center, go to MacArthurCenter.org. To learn more about the Master Seminary, to consider being trained for pastoral ministry, visit us at tms.edu. ATD, out. Now he's got me. I'll have to look at another crime meme for the next...